to tomorrow, not tomorrow, day after tomorrow, right? Yes, day after tomorrow uh, is October 31st, and um, October 31st is, uh, is a couple important things. Um, one, it is my wife's birthday. So, um, number two, obviously, it's Halloween, um, which is, I don't know, top 10 holidays, probably. Um, I hate dressing up for things. It's just not my jam. Not a, not a candy guy, so, but whatever, it's fun. Um, and you have to do all that stuff when you have kids. Um, this year, um, October 31st, 2017, is, is the 500th anniversary of the Prod- Protestant Reformation. Uh, so nerds like myself tend to refer to Halloween not as Halloween but as, as Reformation Day. Um, do we know what happened on October 31st? Martin Luther, uh, not Martin Luther King Jr., different thing. Uh, this is well before him. Martin Luther uh, went to the door of the cathedral in Wittenberg, Germany, and nailed the 95 theses to the door. Now, saying that, I heard a presentation by a historian this summer at our EPC General Assembly, and apparently that probably didn't happen, which is deeply disappointing that that's not, that that's not exactly what happened. Um, but let's say that it did. Um, let's say that the, the story that grew up is, is actually true. Um, that, what he did that, that day, whether he submitted these 95 theses some other way where he put them on the door. He did, not, uh, he did not intend to create what we are experiencing now. That's not what he thought in his mind that he was doing. He was actually starting a, an academic debate. That's what he wanted to do. He was nailing these items for debate to the door or whatever really happened so that the academic community, the academic theologians would get together and have a conversation about these 95 things. And you can read the 95 theses now, and most of them will be profoundly boring to you, um, if not totally meaningless, because he's talking in the language of scholastic theologians about stuff that most of which we're not interested in. Now, there are some things that are in there that will maybe stick out to you. But that was part of a process of Martin Luther being one of many people who began to call the church to account on some things. The church at that point had been around for 1,500 years, there, thereabouts. Um, not undivided. Uh, f- several hundred years before then, the church had already split to some degree. Um, but basically, if you were a Christian, you were just a Catholic Christian, just like everybody else. But over time, these abuses kind of grew up in the church. And Martin Luther and others uh, at this time kind of put their hand up and said, 
Now, wait a second. What are we doing and why are we doing this? Martin Luther was preceded uh, by, by several people, uh, John Wycliffe, John Huss, uh, that were already in the process of kind of objecting along these lines. But Martin Luther that day seemed to, that to be the tipping point. And the, the stone started to roll downhill once these conversations were started by Luther. And what we're going to do as a Protestant people, I don't know if you knew this, but we're Protestant. This is a Protestant church. Um, we're going to talk about these five values that was at the heart of the Reformation. Now, the Reformers found lots of things to fight about, some of them ridiculous, some of them incredibly important. Uh, the Reformers were a cranky, grumpy crowd, generally for, for good reason, but oftentimes they were just seemed like people who were ready to fight. But these five things that we're, we're going to talk about are, are at the center, at the heart of the Reformation. We're not doing all five today. We're, we're using five weeks to do them. They're called the five solas of the Reformation. So this morning we're talking about uh, this value, this ethic that the Reformers had which is sola scriptura, scripture alone. Now, since these 500 years have passed, we are, we've, we've gone through these waves of how we've looked at the Protestant Reformation and the people who led the Reformation. And, and some por portions of the past 500 years, we've looked at them as basically unadulterated superheroes um, who you should name all your children after, and you should just, you know, put on the wall as the guy that you want to be like. Uh, and now we're kind of in this other flip side of the cycle where we're tempted to look back at the Reformation and basically make everything that's wrong with society the fault of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, and this, I would say, is a real mistake. There are some things there in the Protestant Reformation that that are real and valuable and, and beautiful and probably were going to happen at some point in history, um, whether it was at this time or not. And we, we don't want to lose hold of those things. And these five things are at the heart of what I think is beautiful and good about the Protestant Reformation. Now, there, there have been some unintended consequences of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, some things that are hard and difficult and even sad. Um, there, it's easy to find yourself at any given Protestant or Catholic church and to find this air of everybody on my particular team, they're the good ones. All the other people on the other teams, they're the enemy, or they're less than, or they're dumb. Maybe the Protestant Reformation helped fuel that spirit, and that can't be the spirit of Jesus' church. It just can't be. Whether we are united under the same governing church body or not, we are united by the name of Jesus Christ. And those people with whom I have deep disagreements, whether they are Baptist or Catholic or Lutheran or whatever, I can't talk about them as if they're enemies. They are my brothers and sisters. They're my friends. So... We're saying that these five things are not things that uh, should result in 
fracturing or disunity. These are actually things around which the church can gather, whether you go to a Baptist church or a Presbyterian or a Lutheran, an Anglican, or even a Catholic church. There are treasures here. This, uh, this value of Scripture alone is maybe the thing that Martin Luther was most known for. Although, the man was hilarious. If you ever get the chance, you should read Martin Luther. Um, just a real bro. He, he was. Um, he was uh, f- sometimes foul-mouthed. He was uh, caustic in the way that he fought with people. Loved a beer or ate with his friends, uh, loved to talk theology at his table, just a passionate, passionate, brilliant man. And after he nailed these theses, these disputations to the door, if it really happened, um, he started down this road that ended with the church saying that he's going to be excommunicated. And there's this famous uh, meeting that they call a diet of worms. It is not a worm-eating diet. A diet is a meeting. Worms is a place. There's a meeting at Worms where he has to give an account of himself, and they're famously pushing him to recant what he's written about the nature of, of what the church should be teaching, and he, he basically just sticks his flag in the ground and says, unless you can convince me by holy scripture and by reason, I cannot and will not back down. I can only preach what has captivated my conscience, which is the Holy Word of God. That is sort of the heart of what we're talking about this morning, sola scriptura. So let me read from 2 Timothy 3. But understand this, in the last days there will be times of of difficulty For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jans and Yumbris opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all. As, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching 
for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you. You are the God who speaks to your people. I pray that our our hearts would be opened, our ears would be opened, that we would receive your word, that it would penetrate our hearts. God, that you would shape us and form us to be a people who thirst, who hunger for your word, who feast on it, that we would be filled and overflowing in life, your own life. We commit ourselves to you, Lord Jesus. Glorify your name. Amen. This, uh, this value, this commitment to sola scriptura has gone through several iterations of understanding. And we want to very, be very clear about what I think the Protestant reformers were, were saying uh, about what they believed about scripture alone and match it with what I think that scripture itself says about itself. There are a few passages in the Bible where the Bible will talk about itself and about the power and the authority that is within the Word itself. And, and we read uh, in our, from our call to worship, Psalm 119. It's the longest psalm in the Bible. It's 176 verses that is all about the law of God. Extolling the virtues of the law, what a powerful um, Benefit it is to the people how the lives of the people are forever changed and benefited by the law. Within the law itself is the command to speak and teach and talk about the law repeatedly. And we have Jesus who will preach and, and quote favorably from the law and say that this is the Word of God. We have passages like this one in 2 Timothy and another in 2 Peter where the authors will point back to Scripture and they will say that this is not a construct of man. This is a work of God in the world. That you're not to treat Scripture like it's like any other word. Scripture itself is from God. And here, specifically our passage in 2 Timothy 3 is... Paul is telling his young protege at the end of his life to hold fast to the Word of God. That things will get crazy in the world. There's that very long beginning of the passage where Paul is saying how bad things will get. And you can't help but read that passage and say, hmm, that sounds familiar. And I don't think when Timothy read that, that passage in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3 that he was saying, This is so weird. That's going to be awful. No, Timothy himself could also hear that list of the times and probably say, you know what? That sounds like the newspaper or news scroll, whatever it was, from his day. Paul is is saying that things are going to keep devolving, that people will just be increasingly dictated by their human nature and things will spiral out of control. And people, he says at the end of that first part, people will come try to snatch away or or cause people to drift out of the people of God by using these other kinds of arguments and telling these other kinds of stories and snaring people and pulling them other directions. Paul's antidote is to hold fast to Scripture 
what he, what he says is, Scripture is sufficient. Because Scripture is God-breathed, you don't have to have some other superpower. You don't have to have some ecstatic experience. What is in Scripture is sufficient for everything that needs to happen in the life of the believer, for reproof, for correction, for the growth in life and godliness. So Paul is saying in Scripture, about Scripture, that Scripture contains the very communication of God. Now, people will hear this, and they will make a mistake. It happens, has happened in the church for a long time. People will hear this, sola scriptura, scripture alone. They'll pull two verses from 2 Timothy 3, and they will say, me and my Bible, that's all I need. Me and my Bible, scripture is sufficient. Just me and the Bible in a closet. You know what? I don't, I don't need to go to church today or next week or any week. And I don't need anybody else telling me what to do or what to believe because Scripture alone, my friend, is enough. Now, this is a misunderstanding. One, it's a misunderstanding certainly of what the Reformers taught, but I think more importantly, it's a misunderstanding of what Scripture teaches because there is no concept in Scripture of the autonomous individual but you alone have the law of God, you alone have the scriptures, and you are a singular, unconnected, cellular unit that can live by themselves. Because you have scripture that that is enough. That is not what we are saying. Because we also believe other things about God and how he works in the world. One, we believe that people are made in the image of God. And Scripture is not only speaking to you as an individual. We believe that Scripture is speaking to everyone who reads it. And therefore, other people can also know the truth of the Scriptures. So the reason you go to church and you really should submit to spiritual authority and you really should be connected to a spiritual community is because you are not the only one with a Bible. Now, if you were the only one anywhere in the, in the geographic area with a Bible, then maybe you might have a better argument for not needing any of this or anyone out there. But... Man, it's 2017. We all have like 40 Bibles in our pocket. You are not the only one with a Bible. And so you then have lost the ability to say, I am the autonomous individual who can live alone with the Scriptures. People other than you can read the Bible and can hear from God and be taught by God, and sometimes that means you will be wrong. This is usually what people mean when they say, I'm just all about the Bible, my friend. When somebody gets up and preaches and just says, you know, those other people, they'll give you interpretations. I'm just giving you the word. 
watch out for those people because they are 100% giving you their interpretation. You can be wrong. Let me go one step further. You will be wrong. You will be wrong. The problem is that you don't know when you're wrong. Because if you knew when you were wrong, you wouldn't believe the wrong things, right? Hopefully. One of my favorite um, theologians, New Testament scholars, N.T. Wright, said something along the lines of, at any given time, I assume that about 15% of my theology is wrong. The problem is I just don't know what the 15% is. And when you live in a community that has anchored itself to the Scriptures, what is required is that you believe that 2 Timothy 3 is not just speaking to you, but to the people on your left and your right and ahead of you and behind you. What you have to be sure to believe is that the authority lies in Scripture and not in you. This is where the danger comes. Because we tend to scripturalize our own authority and interpretation. So that if anybody comes and tells us we're wrong, we puff ourselves up and say, how dare you touch the Lord's anointed and speak against His word? How dare you? But that is not anywhere what the Bible will tell you. That you are the perfect interpreter of the Word. And in fact, what Scripture will tell you again and again is, you should not trust yourself. Friday, I was teaching uh, the book of Proverbs to my Old Testament class. And what I told them is that the central, one of the central messages of the book of Proverbs is that you don't know what you're doing. And you shouldn't trust yourself. And, and I'm not, not paraphrasing here. It literally it says that. Maybe I'm slightly paraphrasing, but really it does say that in Proverbs 3. This is what I pulled out from them. 3 verse 5, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. We today are deeply, deeply committed to being wise in our own eyes. And I'm not saying we, but meaning you guys. I, I'm saying we, and including myself, very much. We are deeply committed to being wise in our own eyes. We are deeply committed to the logic with which we have convinced ourselves. We are deeply committed to being right. And for us to give away the right to be right 
is incredibly important. The Bible will warn against this again and again and again. You do not know what you're doing. You and I are born, yes, with the image of God, with appetites and cravings that only point in His direction, but we are also a mixed bag that we have our own innate desires and pulls in a drastically wrong direction. So that even the times when you choose, you want to do the right thing, the best thing, you think that you're trying to aim at God, would you have to understand and, and realize and accept as there are undercurrents in your heart that will tow you out into the sea of sin and, and, and disaster. Because you and I were born this way. It's not even conscious at times. And Scripture will say, don't trust yourself. Do not trust yourself. But instead, repeatedly, continually, incline your ear to the law of the Lord. Notice what, how Paul describes the power of the, of the word. What does he say the word is good for? Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. How much of that is Paul explicitly saying Scripture is sufficient to tell you no, that you are wrong. Teaching, reproof, correction. You know, this is at the heart of who we are. This commitment, this belief that we are not God, and yet God is not somewhere else so far away that He's left us to somehow grope our way towards Him. People, this is a conversation that I, that I get to have with people, is how do I hear from God? People in, in deep spiritual darkness who are asking this question with tears in their eyes, I feel like God is somewhere else. How do I hear from Him? And in one sense, this is the easiest question. I get asked really complicated, difficult questions. I say, I don't know a lot. I know that may be hard to believe if you know me. I actually do say, I don't know quite a lot. This one, I have a very simple and concrete answer. If you want to hear from God, open your Bible. Now, that may annoy you. It annoys almost everybody that I say that to. Because what you want, what you're saying is, how do I get that mystical sunbeam of spirituality to, to hit my heart and, you know, I'm crying on the ground and, you know, I see visions and things are just like super magical or even just like 10% of that super magical experience. How do I get that? And I'm saying, open your Bible. And you're just like, that is super boring. And let me, let me just tell you, yep, it may be super boring. I am not at all pledging to you a mystical experience. What I am telling you is, this is God 
speaking to his people, and it is infallibly there for you. It may not say everything that you want it to say. It may not make you feel all the things that you want to feel. But it is there speaking to you the infallible Word of God. There is no error within it. It is speaking to you and it's just sitting there. You don't have to like go through some tremendous fasting experience. You don't have to climb a mountain. You don't have to smoke a weird drug. You don't have to be a good enough person or any other spiritual process that other religions might go through to tell you have to hear from God. You have to do this. Boom. God is speaking to you. Right there. It's happening. Right there. And, and you may go through times in your life where you pick up the Bible and you read it and you're like, this is just me opening a book. This is just me opening a book and reading day after day and it's not getting more exciting and it's not, there's still no sunbeams and I want sunbeams. And what I would say to you after those many, many, many days of you opening the Bible, do not lean on your own understanding, but instead incline your heart to the Lord. Maybe the thing that you want is not good for you. Maybe the thing that you think you need, God sees you and won't give it to you because it's not actually what you need. That means, bear with me, that you might have to believe that, and I know this is hard, you are not God. You might not know everything. You might not even know what you need. But this right here, everything that is necessary for life and for godliness are in the Scriptures. That doesn't mean like it's going to tell you what you should get from the salad buffet. It doesn't mean that it'll, it'll tell you what school you should go to necessarily, what job you should take. It may not tell you exactly how to order your budget. That's not what we're saying. But everything that you need for your life with God is in here. There is no other extra source of authority or experience that you need. We, we today have more access to the Bible than any generation ever. This is not an opinion. This is a fact. We have more access than any generation ever. And this, our culture specifically, in the South, in the United States, we have more access than anybody anywhere now and forever. And yet we have less and less and less familiarity with the thing that God has given His people to continually shape our understanding 
and to reform our hearts. As all that stuff that Paul describes in in 2 Timothy 3 gets turned up, the volume on all of that stuff gets turned up, more and more and more people are choosing to close their Bible or to never open their Bible app and to just let it grow dusty as if it is a thing like any other thing. But here's the truth. The Bible reflects God's character. Not just in its content, although of course we mean its content. But it takes an element of belief about God to see any worth in this thing. What I I mean by this is, there is a way that you can worship your Bible. That instead of letting the Bible reveal God's character to you and, and see it and receive it as a means of revelation of God himself, you can view it as the way that you can, whatever, justify your life, that you can be a good enough person, that you can know enough things to feel real good about yourself. There, just like anything else good that comes from God, there are ways to misuse and abuse and twist and worship the thing instead of the one who gives the thing. But what we're saying about Scripture is that its mere existence says something about God's character. And if I could, I just want to read one more passage from the Bible itself. The Gospel of John will start this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I'm going to skip down. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. We believe that God is within Himself community. That Father, Son, and Spirit forever, forever communicating within Himself. It is God's nature to be communicating. So John names Jesus as the Word. He is the eternal Word. He has always been the Word. We say that the Son has eternally proceeded from the Father. He he has been eternally generated from the Father. He has forever and always been the Word. God has always been communicating. And God communicates with His people because that is the way that He is. He is not some distant, far-off, secret thing 
that he hopes that somehow maybe people will figure things out. Because God is the way that he is, he communicates, he expresses himself, he speaks. And we have within our homes, within our pockets, this speaking of God that tells us of his character and only exists because of his character. It is because God is a speaking God that we are a reading people. It is because God is a communicating God that we are a listening people. Scripture carries in it the personality, the communication of God. It is the communication of the divine word forever and ever. And you and I treat it as the thing to build our case on or maybe the thing to level our bookcase with. But there is power here. Even if it is slow and it is quiet and it is not quite as spine-tingly as we always like. It is confusing at times. It is hard at times. It requires work, but it works on you. It works in you. I wanted to read this quote, and I have to pull out my phone because I took a picture of it. This is from Martin Luther at the end of his life, but he was talking about the impact that people had said that he had had. He said, I oppose indulgences and all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends, Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. The word did everything. If you are, if you are lost, confused, empty today, of course I want to pray with you. Of course I want you to have experiences with God. Those are not bad things or wrong things. God speaks through those things and they're wonderful. But the thing that is infallible and inerrant is the thing that maybe we, we bypass far too quickly. If you need to hear from God, open your Bible. If you think that you need some other stream of authority or experience in your life that will tell you other things about God, that's not, that's not what we're doing. This right here, the Scripture is our anchor and everything that is necessary in our lives is here waiting for you. Maybe you don't read your Bible, you've tried, you've done the, the worst thing. If you are terrible at reading your Bible and you say, this is the year, I'm going to read the whole Bible, and you start in Genesis 1, probably about the, I don't know, end of Exodus, beginning of Leviticus, you die, you fail. That is the hardest way to read the whole Bible. Don't do that. Pick up your Bible, though, and read more than zero. Pick up your Bible and read a psalm. 
or half of a psalm. Work up your spiritual muscles, your reading muscles, and listen to a little bit. Put yourself under the waterfall of God's Word little by little until it wears on you and works on you and shapes you so that you lean more and more not on your own understanding, but on the understanding the law of God. Pick up your Bible. If it's been a long time, you don't have to be better before you do it. Don't do that thing. Well, you know I'm going to do it? January 1. That's when I'm going to start. You know I'm going to do it? I'm going to have the right journal, when I have the right space carved out, when I have my little corner made in the, that I can put my desk. When I, and you can put these things. Win, win, win. Don't, don't do that. Today, pick up your Bible. Read something. And hear from God. If it's been a long time or if it's been a few minutes, pick up your Bible and read something. And let the power of God speak to you, work in you, and change you more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, whose word we hold. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you that you made us to be a people who need the word. You made us a people to to be a people who dwell on the word. God, I pray that we would dwell with your scriptures and let the power in your word work on us. God, we confess that we have left aside the reading of your word far too much. And we have made it a, a kind of spiritual ladder that we feel we must climb to be a better person. But God, we are a people who are far simpler than that. There is no ladder to climb with you. You have made us your children. And we need to hear from our Father. God, I pray that you would move our hearts that you would open up the the Scriptures to us. God, I pray that you will make us a people faithful to do small things and that we would see you work in the simple and small, simple reading of your Word. Correct us, prove us, train us up in righteousness that we might grow up into adulthood in Jesus we see and understand your character more and more in your word. We thank you, Jesus, for being faithful to us, even though we are so often faithless. We delight in you, God. Amen.